0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important.
1: Have you ever wanted something good uh, in your life, but the, the way that you went about trying to get it was the wrong way to try and get it? All Ralphie Parker wanted for Christmas was that famous Red Rider Carbine Action 200-shot range model air rifle. And he went to enormous lengths to try and get it. He tried several different avenues. He, he tried the route of being a morally upstanding young boy with his parents. And that worked out pretty well until he was caught using a particular four-letter word with his dad on the side of the road as they were changing a tire. His moral excellence was gone in that moment. He tried the route of uh, exceedingly excelling in academia. In his schoolwork, he thought his brilliance in the composure of a certain English paper would bring about the approval of his teachers, and and his teachers would would say to his parents, this boy is worthy of that Red Ryder carbine action uh, BB gun. He should have one because he's so literate in his use of the English language. That didn't seem to work either, and so he he tried the spurious attempt of some sort of religiosity by climbing to the Christmas heaven, only to meet there a rushed and tired Santa and angry elves who kicked him down the slide into his mundane human existence, shouting ho, ho, ho as he went down. I think what Ralphie failed to consider was the true nature of his father. I wonder if we're like that ourselves as well. We seek to gain a clear conscience, to have the slate of our hearts wiped clean, and, and to do that, to accomplish that, we buy into the myths and lies of our enemy and the world to obtain the mercy we so desire. Like Ralphie, we have come to believe that, that maybe it's our moral excellence will earn us the right to a clean conscience and, and the mercy that we need from any of our transgressions. Maybe if we live perfectly, we'll attain that forgiveness and mercy that we need. But we all know we're failures. So maybe we think, well, maybe if we're a cut above our fellow human beings, maybe if we demonstrate moral and religious superiority and devotion, then then why wouldn't God be obligated to have us on His team? Why wouldn't He be pleased that we are so excellent to have His mercy fall on us? great people that we are. Or maybe we believe that perhaps our religious activity, our zeal, combined with the right words and the right duties, will somehow altogether wipe away the stain of sin from our minds. And so we pursue those avenues. And that can lead us to think that we will obtain mercy like Ralphie did, but, but, fi- but like Ralphie, we might find that we have failed altogether to understand the true nature of our Heavenly Father. So I want to ask us, how is it that we obtain a clean conscience? We're in Psalm 51 here, and we find this psalm and the inscription of it written at a particular point in King David's life. The inscription of the heading says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's a really sanitized way of telling us the story of David and Bathsheba. David the king, as you heard last Sunday, uh, he, desired, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, staying at home and, and pursuing the lust and desires of his heart, saw a beautiful woman bathing on the roof as he was a king looking at his city. And so he had her brought to him where he slept with her, committed adultery, and then later discovered that she had conceived. And so in an attempt to cover up his sin and to hide his adultery, he summoned the woman's husband back home he being a soldier in the battles, he came home, but yet he was an honorable soldier. He was committed and focused to the duty of his king and his kingdom. And so he, although came back to the city of Jerusalem, he stayed by the side of the king and didn't go home to his wife. And so it was impossible for David to cover up his sin. And the only way that David could think of to to get clear of that was to have this one particular soldier killed and murdered. He sent the instructions for Uriah to be put into the place of a battle where he would get killed, and he was, and David figured Bathsheba could go through the right mourning period and grief, and then they could get married, and Noah would be the wiser about whose child she had conceived. He had committed great sin. And so Nathan, the prophet, came to him and through the telling of a particularly clever story, it was really a legal case that he brought to David, he presented to him a rich man who had all the flocks he could want and imagine of sheep and his neighbor, a poor man who had one precious lamb. And that rich man had a guest over and the guest, for that guest, the rich man stole the one little lamb of the poor man and served him on a platter to the guest David, in his fury, cried out that that man should be killed. He should pay with his life. And that's where the precision of Nathan's confrontation came in, where he pointed the finger at David and said, you're the man. The sin is on you. The guilt is on you. David lived with not a clean conscience, but with one that had been troubled and deeply, deeply scarred by his sin. And that's a position that you and I can probably find ourselves in all the time. When we're confronted with our sin and rebellion, when we are made aware of our failures and our sin, how we have hurt others and how we have disregarded the name of God, what do we do with that? If we recognize our own error and rebellion, how can we get our slate wiped clean? The series is called Confessions erasing shame, and experiencing renewal. And through it, we're trying to encourage you as a a people to think about how you will and when you should come to God with your sin and confess your sin to Him. Well, this psalm is is a means of prayer for us. David wrote this in the midst of his own confrontation and confession of his sin. He wrote it as a way to cry out to God and to provide language for you and I to take to God and to pray to God about our own sin and shame. This this psalm is helpful for you and I to give us words to take to God. We desire and we seek mercy, but I wonder if you and I are seeking it or trying to obtain it in the wrong way. Perhaps we have forgotten the nature of our Heavenly Father. Now, I want to take us just to verses 1 and 2 of this, this psalm this morning. To help us think through who it is we are praying to, who it is we're confessing to, and what His nature is for us. The the big idea of these two verses is that God is the giver of mercy. And that's the fundamental place that we need to understand here about how we obtain the mercy of God and what right we have, what, what basis we have to stand on when we seek God's mercy. You see, we need to see God as one who is ready to give His mercy. Mercy and forgiveness, cleansing from our sin, it's not found on the basis of our own activity, the basis of our own righteousness, the basis of our own moral excellence. Cleansing from sin doesn't come from us intrinsically because of our actions, but mercy and grace comes because God is the one who pours out His grace and mercy. He is the giver of mercy. The basis by which we obtain the mercy of God is God Himself and His character and nature. So I want us, in these first two verses, to ask ourselves the question, what is the basis upon which I can stand to access the mercy of God? If you need a clear conscience this morning, if you have a troubled heart because of your sin, if you feel that you are a failure and broken before the Lord, which is true of all of us, the good news is that you can go to God for mercy and grace. And it's because of who He is you can find it and be cleansed. I want to help you see what solid ground you have to stand on to ask for God's mercy in your life. But again, it's not the solid ground of you. It's the solid ground of God and who He is. So I want to help us in our prayers by helping us see how we should make our appeals before God. Two appeals for us to think about and to pray over when we take our sin to the Lord. We should, first of all, pray by appealing to the character of God. If we're, if we're going to seek mercy and forgiveness for our sins in our lives, we should appeal, we should stand on the basis of God and His character. When we pray, when we seek Him and His mercy, we should begin by stating and identifying God's very character, His very nature. So David does this. He, he cries out and he says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. He is a man who at this point now, after being confronted by Nathan and told, you are the man, yours is the sin. After he's been exposed, he is wrecked by that. He is, he is broken with an awareness of his failure. And the way he has rebelled against God, he knows He knows clearly in the depth of his heart he has violated God's law. He knows that he is wicked and that he has done wicked things. He knows that he stands under God's righteous judgment. He deserves death for his own actions. He proclaimed it himself when he said that man should die. And so he comes to God with with a sinner's prayer. He comes recognizing his brokenness, saying, God, be merciful to me. Have mercy on me. Now, the word here for mercy is the Hebrew word that means grace or, or favor. It's the idea of God being positively inclined towards him. So he's saying, God, be favorable to me. Don't, don't oppose me, but, but be for me. Be disposed towards me. Love me. Show me kindness. Show me compassion. And that's what David recognizes as his need. He needs God's mercy and compassion and grace to cover and to support him. But you might think, well, what, on what basis would David have any right to ask that from God? I mean, like, he's, he's probably the most terrible human being in, the history, in history at that moment in time. He would feel that in his way. Maybe you feel that way going to God with your sin. Like, I am so broken. I am such a sinner. Why in the world would God have anything to do with me? David can't ask for God's mercy and compassion because he's a good man, a good person. He can't go to God and be like, oh God, be kind and positively disposed towards me because I really deserve it. I've I've had a great week and I've done everything right. No, not at all. Nor can he plead and request God's gracious mercy and presence with him because of his status, because he's the king. Well, God, you, you placed me as king over Israel, and, and you've given me all of this kingdom to, to lead, and I am, I am the one who is leading your people, so you should just forgive me because I'm number one in the nation. You can't do that. At this point, David has absolutely zero ground on which to stand before God. He hasn't acted righteously. In fact, he's abused his power. He's abused his position. He's abused people. And he's become an adulterer and a murderer. He has vandalized the glory of God and treated with contempt God's ways and decrees. God even said to him, You have despised me. Again, he deserves death and hell. But here's this man asking for compassion and mercy. He's pleading out to God, have mercy on me. And and at the end of verse 1, he's like saying, blot out my transgressions. He wants nothing less than for God to to look at his sin and to wipe them away. Give him a clean slate. He wants God to remove the stain that's in his life and take the record of his transgressions out completely. Now, when we think about horrible people and they're crying out to God, we go, good luck with that, buddy, right? (laughs) Right? Like, not a chance. David, we would think, no way. I mean, you, you've, you've broken too much. You've violated too deeply. You might think, why would David even ask this question? Why wouldn't he just slink off into shame? Why would he approach God and say, show me compassion and grace and be favorable to me? Give me a completely clean record. Again, consider the dynamic here. In David's sin, he has violated, at least by my count, five of the Ten Commandments. Let me just recap these with you. I'll work from the last one forward. David coveted his neighbor's wife, which is commandment number 10, strike one. David bore false witness against Uriah, strike number two. That's commandment number nine. He stole. That's breaking commandment number eight. He committed adultery, commandment number seven. And then he murdered Commandment number six. I mean, just, just think about it. He, that's the whole second half of the law. Five out of ten commandments, he's violated. And I think in his heart, he's placed himself above God. So he's violated number one as well. It would seem to me that asking for any kind of mercy or grace or favor at this point would be completely out of the question for him. I mean, it's like three strikes and you're out, and here he's got six or seven. you You've Completely blown it, buddy. But that would would be us thinking about this and not accounting for who God is, merely thinking about it from David's line of sight. The only way that David can make this kind of appeal to God for mercy and for compassion to have his sins blotted out is because he knows who God is and he knows the character of God. So he says, God, have mercy on me. Be favorably inclined to me. Show me your love and compassion. Show me your grace according to, note that in verse 1, according to or in alignment with who you are, your character. There's two terms here that David bases his request on. One, he says, show mercy to me, be kind to me, according to your steadfast love. The Hebrew word hased. Secondly, he says, show mercy on me, be compassionate to me, according to your abundant mercy. The Hebrew word Reham. These aren't just random attributes that David's picking up out of the air. He's like, oh, you know, what, what can we think about God? Well, let's love, maybe, compassion, mercy. No, no, he, he is standing on biblical ground with these terms. The word steadfast love in the Hebrew, the term said, uh, and I'll just use the Jesus Storybook Bible to articulate and define it for us. Chesed is God's never stopping, never giving up, Unbreaking, always and forever love. We just catch how beautiful that is. Like God's, His, his has said is His never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. He said, "God, that's that's how you love me. That's how you've been. That's who you've said you are to me. Your love will never stop. Never, you'll never give up on me. You, it's unbreakable. No matter what I do, it's always and forever." God, you don't fail. You don't quit on your love. It's relentless. That's why we get in the English Standard Version here the term steadfast love. It's permanent. And, and the second term that David uses to identify God's character, Reham, is, is the idea of abundant mercy. That is God's overflowing compassion and tenderness. It's just like there, there will never be a deficit in this compassion and tenderness. The word is often linked with God's forgiveness, where God shows abundant mercy, he forgives. Now, again, why does David use these terms? Mainly because he knows that's how God has described himself. These are God's own words for God's character. Do you, do you remember how God revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai? Moses wanted to see God and, and his glory, and so God said, well, let me, let me tell you who I am and give you a glimpse, give me a little a picture of my glory. God placed Moses in the mountain, in the cleft of the rock, and he passed in front of him. And in Exodus 34, 6, we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's those terms that David uses, merciful, Raham abounding in steadfast love, said. David knows the fundamental nature and character of God, and this is what he appeals to for his own forgiveness. He says, God, this is the way you have proclaimed yourself. This is the character you have described yourself to be, a God who is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, full of steadfast, unbreakable love and faithfulness. God, that's who you are, and on the basis of who you are, that's where I'm coming and asking for my own forgiveness. One of the ways you might think about God's character here is, in some ways, like you would the tasting notes of single-origin coffee. If you go to a uh, high-end third-wave coffee shop and ask for a pour-over, they will probably ask you, what kind? And and then you'll have all sorts of options, right? They'll say, would you like the Mexican or the Peruvian or the Ethiopian? All I know about those names are that there are places And I don't always know what places taste like. So like I'm confused at that point. And then they'll come and they'll say, well, well, let me describe it to you. Uh, I I went and looked up from one of my favorite coffee roasters. I looked up one of their single origin blends. What are their tasting notes? So this is their Honduras. It's described as honeydew melon, crisp apple, honey, silky. I would never think of those flavors with regard to coffee. But there are those tasting notes there, right? They give us an idea of what, what the coffee will taste like, what you can look for when that, when that strong, hot drink hits your tongue and your palate. Now, if you don't like coffee or all you've ever had is Folgers, all you're thinking is hot brown water, right? Like, that's, that's it. But if you've developed a palate and a, and a broad a range of taste, you know how good coffee is. And and you'll begin to recognize those tasting notes and the quality of it. Some of you have given God the attribute of hot brown water. He's drab. He's mean. He's angry. And and you'll only go to Him if He is the last possible option to get you out of the trouble you're in. But God's character, his, His tasting notes, if you will, are far more vast and beautiful and gracious He is the highest quality of all things. Now, if you know this about His character, you don't have to run and hide when you sin. Instead, you can draw near to God in confession, seeking the very reality of what you need, mercy and love. And you can seek it from the absolute one who can give it because God is the giver of mercy. This should be great encouragement for us, like David, to come clean with our sin because God's fundamental character is that of mercy and steadfast love. That is his primary disposition, his self-disclosure of himself to us, and that is his mercy, grace, steadfast love, and faithfulness. That's who God is. He is the giver of mercy. So when you sin, when you are aware of your sin, and your brokenness and need, and, you, and you're at that moment where you say, I need a clean slate. I need mercy. I, I need to be completely forgiven. Don't walk up to God and confess your sin and be like, God, look, I'm such a good person. I'm so religious. I've excelled well, and therefore you should be merciful to me. Go to God and say, God, you're merciful. You're full of steadfast love. You abound in grace and forgiveness. Appeal to God on His character, on who He is. That's how you can obtain mercy. It's on the basis of who He is. Not only that, you can appeal to God on the basis of what He does, on the basis of His work. And there obtain mercy for your soul. And so that's the second thing. Appeal to God based on His character, but appeal to God on the basis of the cleansing power of God. Now, these two verses uh, of Psalm 51, they tell us the two most important things about God in the universe, who he is and what he does. David's request in verse 1 is based on who God is, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. But the second three lines at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, those are his appeal based on what God does. Blots out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. David's request here is nothing short of a full and complete pardon and forgiveness. Now, I love here that the Bible gives us such an extreme model. It's a way for you and I, who perhaps aren't murderers, perhaps aren't adulterers, but we're sinners nonetheless, like David. We have a model here of his great sin and God's forgiveness so that we, in our sin, can go to God and seek forgiveness as well. David wants to be cleared of all wrongdoing. So he says at the end of verse 1, blot out my transgressions, take them away, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Now, if you notice here, there's three terms that David uses to describe his failure. I think they're all important. Transgressions is where he starts. Blot out my transgressions. The Hebrew word has the idea of rebellion. It's outright defiant and aggressive opposition. Raising our fist at God and saying, "No, I'm going to do my own thing." It's one way David views his sin. God, I have aggressively opposed you. And then the second term in verse two, the term "iniquity." The idea of iniquity is behind this word is the idea of being crooked or, or bent towards evil. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's um, uh, Space Trilogy. The, the holy creatures uh, in that space trilogy, they would talk about sinful human beings as bent ones. It's Lewis's idea of, of talking about sin as iniquity. We're bent towards evil. We're inclined towards it. We're crooked. And then the final word there at the end of verse 2 is the idea of, of my sin. Sin here is the idea of missing the mark, failing to meet the standard, falling short. It's, it's evil. Now David uses these three terms just to give us the comprehensive lay of the land of of his broken, fallen heart. It's like saying from A to Z, here's how wicked I am. I've covered all the bases. Every part of me is corrupt. He sees what he has done as evil, rebellious, an active violation of God's law and character. But maybe more than defining the terms of his sin here, We should consider the visual imagery that he draws up and what he asks for. His evil, rebellious violation of God's law is a permanent stain. So he uses the terms, blot out and wash me and cleanse me. like He he has in view like a fine garment that has been soiled or stained, stained by blood even. David views his life as wrecked because of his sin. And he can't get the blight of his actions off of his hands and his heart. I believe this is such a powerful image because it speaks of what sin does in our lives. It stains and ruins absolutely everything, absolutely every part of us. And we, we tend to believe that our sin is compartmentalized, right? Our sin are just small matters. Like we, we say a hurtful word, and it's just our words. You know, sticks and stones could break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And like, that's wrong. Yes, it, they do. But it's just our words, or it's just our actions. But sin, sin corrupts every part of us. Our sin in one case is not just an unconnected dot from something else. It messes with all of us. Sin is far more damaging than just a mistake. If you you know me at all, you know that I love books. And and I have way more in my office than what I know what to do with right now. But I'm very happy about that. Uh, But there's one kind of book that I cannot stand. It's a book with a coffee stain on it. I'm just a little bit quirky that way. Now, you think about my two favorite things in the world, coffee and books, that they would be a great pairing together. But, but when you put those two things together, when you put coffee on a book, it actually repulses me. Every so often, I will have a clumsy moment at my desk. I'll have a cup of coffee there, and I'll be reading or studying something, and I'll knock the coffee cup onto the book. And all of a sudden, that coffee will stain the book. It'll fill it up. And yes, I will take uh, paper towels and napkins and try and dry that book and and mop up the coffee and get it all up there. But there's a problem now with that book that will exist forever there. That book will have that coffee stain on it. The pages will be wrinkled because they got wet and that mark of coffee will always be there. And you know what I do with that book? Right to the trash. It's gone. Like, I don't want that one again. I'll buy a new one. You can't get coffee out of a book. It's impossible. Neither can you get the stain of sin out of your heart. But this is what David asks. He's like, blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me. Remove the stain. David, again, here is not just picking random words to talk about this or to visualize it. He's speaking out the history of Israel. He's recalling and bringing to memory the work of God in their lives. He's drawing us to think about the Day of Atonement. Uh, Leviticus 16 is where God gave Moses and Aaron instructions for the practice of the Day of Atonement, that day when Israel would gather together and they would uh, sacrifice a bull and a goat before the Lord at the Tent of Meeting as a way of their sin being forgiven and cleansed. That whole chapter of Leviticus 16 deals with a lot of washing and cleansing and purification, but at the center of it stands the sacrifice on behalf of the people. The people of Israel would bring a goat to the priest, and that goat would be one that they would lay their hands on to represent their sin and their failure. And the priest would take that goat, and he would slaughter that goat. And he would take the blood of that goat, and he would walk throughout the tent of meeting and sprinkling the high and holy places. He would, he would take the blood to the altar and sprinkle it upon the altar. And that practice, as God declared in Leviticus 16.30, was a means by which purification was made for sins. So it, God says, on this day shall atonement, purification, be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. But that act there was really only a shadow. It was pointing forward to the people of Israel and to to us today as we look back. It was pointing forward to the true reality of what Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, would do for us. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. He says in Hebrews 9, For if the blood of goats and bulls, this day of atonement action, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, which is what that Old Testament day of atonement was looking forward to, he says, How much more, or to what greater degree, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that blood, the blood of Christ, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, again here, God is the giver of mercy. God removes the stain of our sin. He is the one who washes us completely. He is the one who cleanses and purifies us, blots out our transgressions, washes us thoroughly from our iniquity, cleanses us from our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ on our behalf. Jesus offered himself as a pure substitute and was sacrificed on the cross on our behalf. He was the pure and spotless Lamb of God, sinless in every way. And yet he suffered the pain and agony and penalty of our sin, sin we deserve to die for. He died in order to purify and cleanse us from all our sin. Now here's the mistake that we can make. The series could create a dangerous position for us because we're calling and inviting you to confess your sin, to take your sin to God so that you will experience renewal and refreshment. The stain of your shame will be cleansed away. But the mistake that we can make is to think that our confession itself is what will cleanse us or remove us, or remove the stain of our sin from us. This is one of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, actually. And it's probably a reason that we as Protestants are reticent to practice confession much ourselves. In the Roman Catholic Church, confession or penance is coming to a human priest, articulating your sin before them, and then doing a specific act of penance, a work, and then that, re- that priest would give you an absolution. You'd receive an absolution from the priest to know that you were cleansed. Now, you might say, well, okay, the difference between us and them is just semantics. You're just mixing up words here. But I want to quote to you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church what they believe about how they're cleansed, the basis that they have to stand on their, uh, for the forgiveness of their sins. It says this, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation is called the sacrament of forgiveness since, and note this here, by the priest's sacramental absolution, God grants the penitent pardon and peace. Do you, do you catch that? It's by the priest's sacramental absolution. Not by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, not by his sacrifice and his substitution for you that you are granted pardon and peace. It's because a priest says so. And friends, that's a whole other gospel. It's contrary to the scriptures. You're not purified or made clean or granted pardon and peace because a priest says so when you confess to them. The basis of our pardon and peace is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and his sacrifice alone. Jesus is the only one who cleanses us from our sin. That's because God is the giver of mercy. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't clean yourself up enough to get it you come to God claiming and, and approaching Him, basing your need on His character and on His work. So let me ask, what does this mean for our lives? Scripture is true. John, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What this means is that mercy and pardon, God's grace is available to everyone who will come to Him. You draw near to God and articulate like David did, "Have mercy on me, O God. God forgives. He cleanses and purifies you." The writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 28:13 says, "Whoever conceals his transgressions, whoever hides them, will not prosper. But the one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." Good news, friends. you can find mercy. If you're you're here today and you're troubled by your sin, you're broken by your failure, you're, you're crushed by your iniquity, good news. God's mercy and forgiveness and healing and cleansing are there right from him because of who he is. He is the God who is abounding in steadfast love, who is full of abundant mercy. Who's ready to blot out your transgressions and to to wash you from your iniquity and to cleanse you from your sin. And he has done that. He has demonstrated that. He makes that possible through what Christ has done on the cross for you. And so he welcomes you to come to him with your sin so that you find healing. He invites us, each one of us today, as, as I would use the words of Isaiah the prophet, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they stain everything. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, good news, they shall become like wool. Because Jesus Christ, full of grace and mercy and compassion, stood in your place, died for your sins, and was raised to life again on the third day the good news is that God is the giver of mercy. You don't have to be like Ralphie and try and earn your way to a great thing, achieve by your moral superiority, be a religious practicing person to get it. All you do is come to God and plead on the basis of who he is and what he has done for you in Jesus Christ, and you will find mercy and forgiveness. God is the giver of mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are full of steadfast love. That You are the one who is slow to anger, abounding in mercy, full of grace. You are the one who forgives. And you have done that By your grace in Christ. We are forgiven and we confess this morning, Lord, our own efforts are just failures. They don't work. So this morning we, we cry out and we ask for your mercy and grace, not based on ourselves, but based on what Jesus has done for us. Heal us because Christ has died for us. Cleanse us because he has made purification for our sins. Make us whole, renew us, because Christ has died and he lives again. We ask that we would experience and know your grace. We thank you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart, and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family head to woodsidebible.org/connect to introduce yourself today